Does God really love us? We've just sang about it, but does God really love us? Is God really there for us? Is he really here in our favor? What is it that God requires of us? What does he want from us? If you ever ask, ask yourself self those questions, you, you find yourself in good company this morning. There are some of the ancient questions that people throughout the years have asked. But praise God that it's not an open-ended question. That God has given us his word to provide answers to some of the most long-asked and most important questions of all, all of life. We find that this morning in the book of Micah as we continue our study in Micah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Micah chapter 6. This morning, we inch a step closer to our completion of this book. We've been taking one week of time to go through one chapter as Micah, this 8th century prophet, writes to the people of Judah, the people of Israel, telling them about their God and their obligation to turn from sin and to follow hard after him. Micah chapter 6, this morning we'll read through the entire chapter. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is a curse? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri 
and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Now, as you look at this passage, I think you see a, a structure here that sort of resembles a courtroom scene. In verses 1 and 2, God summons Micah to, to plead his case with the mountains as his witness and the people of Judah as the ones he brings a charge, an indictment against. In verses 3 to 5, you see God as the plaintiff speaking, bringing a formal complaint against the people. In verses 6 to 8, you see a settlement trying to be worked out with the people asking in verses 6 and 7 what it will take to make things right with God. And God in verse 8 laying out the only acceptable terms. And then in verses 9 through 16, you see the verdict, the sentencing because of the people's rebellion. And in all these verses, here's the main idea I think God wants to convey to his people. The main point of this passage for his people then and now. Ethical purity not just ritual performance, is what pleases the Lord. Ethical purity, not just ritual performance, is what pleases the Lord. Or to put it in more layman's terms for us, how you act Monday through Saturday, not just whether you show up on church on Sunday, is what matters to God. As we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts around three questions that we see raised and answered in this text. So three questions that are serve as the three points of the sermon. Number one, what has God done to you? We see that in verses one through five. Number two, what must you do for God? We see that in verses six through eight. And number three, what will happen if you don't? We see that in verses 9 through 16. Number one, what has God done to you? Number two, what must you do for God? And number three, what will happen if you don't? Point number one, what has God done to you? And that's in essence what God is asking in these first few verses. You see it there explicitly in verse 3 as, as God asks, what have I done to you? It's really something, a question that God poses in the first five verses as a whole. God here puts his people on trial and charges them with wrong for thinking that he's done wrong to them. And just notice again all the, all the courtroom or legal language that's used here. In the second half of verse 1, Micah is summoned to arise and plead your case which is really God's case. As verse 2 states that the Lord has an indictment against Israel. I mean, Micah begins the entire thing in verse 1 proclaiming, hear what the Lord has to say. And what he has to say is a word against Israel. Micah doesn't know of a God who speaks happy thoughts. As much as we don't want anybody bringing any negativity into our lives, sometimes our lives need to be negated. And again, notice here, this isn't just by some random person, but by God. We can't counter here to, to get ourselves off the hook. Only God can judge me. Because here God is 
judging you. Specifically here, judging his people, the people of Israel. He has an indictment that will stick against them. And, and why does he call the mountains and the hills to bear witness, to hear the case against his people? Well, it was the, the mountains that were there when, when Israel pledged to obey all of God's commands at Sinai. But also, remember, it's, it's been the mountains and the hills that have served as the places where the people of God have prostituted themselves by bowing down and worshiping false gods. Uh, let the people try to mount a defense, and the mountains and hills surrounding them can wholeheartedly corroborate God's charges as credible witnesses. Now, we shouldn't think of these mountains coming animated and actually speaking, but if it came to that, they would. I mean, remember Jesus telling the Pharisees that if the crowds stopped crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, in praise, then the rocks would raise their voices to testify of him. And God never leaves himself without a witness. The people of Israel have rebelled against God. God knows it. The mountains and hills can testify to it. And the people know it as well. But for what reason? For what legitimate reason have they turned their backs on God? That's what the Lord asked there in, in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Oh, what is it that I've done or failed to do that's caused you to act this way? To run out on me and run after other gods. To turn away from me and your co covenant obligations to me. How have I wearied you? that you're tired of me. The people have grown bored with God, with following his ways, with seeking after him, with worshiping him the way that he prescribed. Following his laws have become a wearisome chore, a burden they wanted to be freed of. They yawned in the presence of God. Their love for him had turned cold. Perhaps you know the feeling. I mean, maybe you are here, but only in body. And your mind, your spirit is elsewhere. You've long drifted off into thinking about what will happen after service. The food, the games after service. Or better, the real fun later on when you leave all these dry religious folks. You'll sing these little songs about how deep God's love is for us but your love for him is shallow, if existent at all. You don't have any desire to read his word, to come to church, to pray, to evangelize. You've been there, done that, but in this season, to be frank, you're tired of God, sick of trying to live for him. Now, you may never verbalize those words. The people of Israel never formally voiced them. But God knew exactly what was in their hearts. He knew how to interpret their actions and their attitudes as what it really was. Total disinterest in him. He knows today as well how to rightly interpret things. Like the vast difference between our screen times and our quiet times. The passion with which we argue about politics and violence vaccines and masks and social issues and sports 
in relation to the total apathy we have towards telling our neighbors or our co-workers or our classmates about Jesus. God sees it. He can put a finger on it and you've grown weary of me. You're tired of me. But even as that's the case, notice the faithfulness of God. Israel has forsaken the Lord, rebelled against him, and yet the Lord has not forsaken them. Notice verse 2 says, the Lord against his people. Or here in verse 3, God calls them my people. It's the same way he addresses them in verse 5. My people. Yes, their sin is grievous, but God does not throw them away. They've been unfaithful covenant partners, but God remains faithful. I mean, he told them back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, before he even entered into a covenant with them, that I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. But a lot has happened from Exodus 6, 7 to Micah 6, 3. Israel has made a golden calf and bowed down and worshiped it. They've grumbled and complained against God countless times. They've rejected his kingship and sought a king like the nations around them. They've married people God told them not to marry. They've adopted pagan practices that God told them not to adopt. They've treated God as if he didn't exist. And yet, God still calls them my people. How great and long-suffering, patient God is with us. How steadfast his love is towards his people. God is gracious to us even in our sin. Yes, he has a word to speak against Judah here, but it's not to do them harm, but good. It's to wake them up and win them back from chasing after things that will only lead to their ultimate judgment. His harsh words are not to harm them, but to help them. Now, we live in a day where we think that if someone really loves us, if someone is for us, that they won't say anything against us. On the contrary, the only way love can be shown is agreeing with and celebrating everything about us. And not to do so is to show hatred. But that's a, pre that's a pretty immature view, isn't it? I mean, a good coach points out bad plays in practice and coaches his players hard because he wants them to succeed. A good parent corrects their children's behavior because they love them and want to see them thrive. A good God calls out his people's sins because he wants them to live and not die. I hope you see here that, that God has something against Israel, but it's not because he hates them, but because he loves them. They are his people. And if you care about people, then you do not want to see them plunging headfirst into destruction. He calls out to them, oh, my people, what have I done to you that's so wrong that you've turned away from me? Answer me. And before he gives them a chance to respond, 
he responds in verses 4 and 5, reminding them of all the good he's done for them. Tell me the grounds on which you have legitimate beef with me. For it was I who rescued you from Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. He says in verse 4, I mean, stop and You were in bondage to the Egyptians. Remember how hard that was, how bitter that was. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, taskmasters were put over the people of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. Exodus 1, 12, they were oppressed. Exodus 1, 13 to 14, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Exodus 2, 23 through 25, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And what did God do? He called out to Moses in Exodus 3 and told him, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God stretched out his hand and he delivered Israel out of Pharaoh's hand, sending Moses and Aaron to lead and to serve them. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? I'm the one who rescued you from the weariness you were in in Egypt. Remember? Remember how I brought you out of Egypt and into the promised land. And that's what God points their eyes to in verse 5. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. In Numbers chapter 22, the, the people of Israel are in the plains of Moab waiting to cross over into the promised land of Canaan. And Balak, the king of Moab, when he sees how many people there were, he becomes afraid. And so he hires out this prophet Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel so they might be defeated. But God steps in for his people. He appears to Balaam and tells him that he can only bless and not curse the folks. And so Balaam can do nothing other than prophesy to Balak that Israel would crush all their enemies, including the Moabites, as they marched into the promised land. Or remember, Micah says, what happened in Shittim? Where Numbers chapter 25 verse 1 tells us that Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab and to sacrifice to their gods, where they broke the covenant with God. But then remember Gilgal, where Israel passed over the Jordan and landed on the other side in Gilgal, where Joshua chapter 5 says the covenant was renewed. Jog your memories, oh my people. Search through your, your timelines. What have I done to you? Only good and not harm. Work to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. Remember all that I've done to you so that the end of verse 5 says, you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The problem is not with me, but with you 
It's not that I've stopped working to save and secure and bless you. The problem is that you stop trusting in me. I think it shows up that forgetfulness is often the first step to faithlessness. Forgetfulness is often the first step to faithlessness. When you forget all the good that God has done for you, it tempts you to try to find good in some other God. It grows ingratitude in you and produces grumbling against God. Now, you see it in your own life. How often have you told your spouse, you never, your spouse, ne- you never pay me any attention. You never put my interest first. The kids, how often have you brought it out to your parents? You always say no. You always criticize me. Really? We have selective memories, don't we? But I wonder if those complaints against our parents and our spouses, against our loved ones, are really just veiled jabs at God. Frustrated because he never seems to give you what you want when you want it. He always seems distant when times are hard and you need him most. We can all be guilty of spiritual amnesia. Forgetting that it's never been God that's unfaithful, but always us. Now, how can we fight against that forgetfulness? Well, for one, as a church, I think we need to remind each other of God's faithfulness. That's one of the ways that we do when we pledge our covenants, to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. I pray that duty especially encourages you if you're an older member here. You know, we got a lot of 30s and 40-year-olds in our congregation, but we need saints in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. We need your testimonies about God's faithfulness over the years to build up our faith when we're tempted to walk away from God. I pray that even as the Lord grants you old age and gray hairs, he continue to use you to proclaim God's goodness to future generations. Another way we can fight against the forgetfulness that leads to faithlessness is simply by reading our Bibles. I mean, you notice the things God commands his people to remember in verses 4 and 5? Are things recorded in his word? God has written a record of his reliability, of his far-reaching love, to serve as a strong defense against the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are always saying that God's care is lacking, that God's love is drifting. God says, read the Bible from front cover to back cover and see this one unending story of my love for you. And that story is centered on his son, Jesus Christ, where God reminded Israel of rescuing them from bondage, and rescuing them from their enemies to bring them into the promised land. The greatest act of saving love is when God sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to God. But then he laid down his life for us, and he picked up a cross, and he died the death we deserve to die for our sins so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ rose up from the grave, to give us new life and freedom from sin and reconciliation with God to all those who turn from their sins and believe upon him. 
What has God done to you? Absolutely nothing wrong, but everything for your eternal good. So how will you respond? How will you respond? That leads us to point number two. What must you do for God? What must you do for God? God has laid out his case against Israel. It's not him who's done wrong, but who's weary them, but, but them who've, who've rebelled against him. He's passionately recounted specific acts he's done for his people in an effort to woo them, to win them back. He wants them to see the strength of his covenant-keeping love towards them. But here, in verses 6 and 7, we see the strength of sin in responding to such a marvelous God. Instead of confessing their faults and bowing in humble obedience, the people basically respond, what do we have to do to shut you up, to get you off our backs, to get your blessings again? Just tell us. Now, it's presented in more pious language than that. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Verse 6 says, But the rest of the verse and the next one shows us it's just an attempt to pay God off for promises of favor. You've got all these charges against us that we've forsaken you and not the other way around. Okay, let's accept the the argument. Then what do we have to do to get back to the side? What's it going to require? And this person is quoted here in verses 6 and 7, probably a a representative of the entire nation, then starts bargaining. And notice how he raises the bid higher and higher with each offer. Look at the latter half of verse 6. Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, calves a year old? God, I'll give you the most tender of my flock. Offer multiple calves if, if, if that'll secure your favor again. That's not good enough? Yeah, figure that'd be nice. Okay, well, look, look at verse 7 then. Let me change the animal and increase the number. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams then? Is that still not sufficient? Or how about ten thousands of rivers of oil? You see the absurdity in it? I mean, the sum is far beyond anything that anyone could actually provide. Tens of thousands of rivers of oil. It just shows These are not good faith offers born out of grateful hearts. These are offers thrown at God to show that Israel thinks that his demands are far too high. He's unreasonable. And the absurdity continues as Israel raises the bid of the last offer to an incalculable amount. Look at the latter half of verse 7. Shall I give even my firstborn son Will that satisfy you? Will that cancel my transgression, my sin that I've committed against you and get me right with you again? There's nothing more costly than life. But this God is so taxing, so demanding, that he might require even that. And you know what? We'd be willing to sacrifice our firstborn sons if it would get us a little help. Look at how they think about God. Their high offers actually show a low view of God. 
I mean, with this last offer, they lower him to the likes of the pagan deities around them, whom the nations actually sacrifice their children to. It's a practice that God had forbidden his to engage in. But they'd fallen so far that they'd offered their own children as well. Second Kings chapter 16, verses 2 and 3 recounts Ahaz, the king of Judah's reign, how he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And 2 Kings 16 says, he even burned his son as an offering, according to the, 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 the despicable practices of the nation the Lord drove out from among his people. It's the same Ahaz who ruled during the time that Micah prophesied. Remember, Micah prophesied over an extended period of time. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that he prophesied during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Israel had transformed their covenant relationship with God to sort of a quid pro quo arrangement that the other nations had with them, with their gods. A favor for a favor is how they operated. God has charged them with wrong, and so they up what they must do or give for God to forgive them, for God to be happy with them again. Reading this list of proposals, it's easy to criticize Israel for how evil they thought, how preposterous their offers were. But we can fall into the same camp, can't we? thinking that we can pay God off with our works. Now, we may not positively ask, will it take this amount of sacrifices to plead? But when things go wrong, when times are hard, how often do our hearts quickly resort to our works as grounds for why this shouldn't be the case, why this shouldn't be happening? Lord, I give generously to the church. I come to church every Sunday. I volunteer in children's ministry. I say my prayers daily. I read my Bible often. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't gamble. don't play cards. Why is this happening to me? Or when we find ourselves confronted with our own sin, our own deficiency before God, we start doing mental mathematics, trying to calculate what it will take to earn God's favor. Lord, I promise I'll read my Bible all day tomorrow. Well, 10 times a week. It's easy for us to think that our relationship with God is only about rituals, about duties. But it's never been about that. Remember what the prophet Samuel told Israel's first king, Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. God doesn't need you to do more stuff, to offer more sacrifices. God simply calls us to do, to obey what he's already commanded. Look at verse 8. Micah says, he has already told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. God, through Micah, pokes through all the perfunctory acts that people offer to do and touches on what they hadn't been doing, keeping 
the covenant. These seemingly separate commands here to do justice, to love kindness, to walk before God aren't independent actions, one greater than the other in weight. They're simply a succinct summary of Israel's covenant obligations to love God and to love people. I mean, that's how Jesus summarized what the law demands of people. Remember in, in Matthew 22, when one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, what was, what was the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The two are inseparable. It's evident in the the, the, the two tables of the law, the, the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments deal with our obligation to God, and the last six deal with our obligation to people created in God's image. We see the same here. The first two duties the Lord requires relate to people, to do justice and love kindness, and the last to God, to walk humbly before him. The people wanted to know what they had to offer God calves, oil, children. God required that they offer their very selves. That, as Paul later put it in Romans 12, they give themselves as living sacrifices, living lives that were holy and acceptable to God, which is true spiritual worship. You want to know what really pleases me, God says? When you show justice in all your dealings and demonstrate a loving kindness to all kinds of people. The nerve of Israel's problem. I mean, we've seen earlier in this book that what's plagued the people has been. The powerful land grabbers have taken the poor and the weak people's land. The judges and the leaders have given unfair judgments favoring the powerful in the land. And the false prophets have pronounced blessings for the ballers, but curses against the broke folks. And yet all the while, the temple is packed on the Sabbath, and the sacrifices are flowing into it. But God says that a weekend of worship does not wash away a week long of wickedness. You want to know what true worship looks like? Treat people made in God's image with equity. Don't rob or cheat or defraud people. Help those who are vulnerable and weak. Stand up against instances of oppression. Love people with the kind of kindness that reflects God. Look at people's plights with pity and compassion and seeking to give them what they really need. So I wonder if you read verse 8. And see something of how deceptive Satan is. I mean, today in theologically conservative camps that we might be grouped in, eyebrows are raised and arrows are thrown at folks who claim to be Christians and who talk about justice. We've supposedly assimilated to the culture, abandoned the gospel. So afraid of those labels, are we, of being woke or being liberal? that we back away from any talk or any concept of pursuing justice. We don't want to be cast out the comfortable confines of our theological camps. 
But in God's eyes, eyebrows are raised and arrows are thrown at folks who claim to be his, but who don't talk about justice, who don't pursue justice. Again, we want to be careful not to assume that every seeming disparity is an injustice or that every person and every system is just seeming injustices. And so then we constantly raise the banner of justice based on some pet issue of ours or burning desire of ours. We've talked about that. There's a danger in that. But there's also a danger of being precise with our theological terms, persuasive in our theological arguments, to perform all theological duties, but to not really know theology. Because to truly study God, which is what theology literally means, is to know what God requires. And my is it's not about what you know and do, how much scripture you can recount, or how many sacrifices you can give, but about how you treat God's people. What does it look like, what does it look like for us to to do justice and to love kindness? Well, God doesn't give the kind of bullet point list of activities that we all would like. But he has placed us around people to love. So how are your relationships in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace, here in our church? Do you look down on people not as well off as you? Do you use your authority or your influence to belittle and abuse people? What's your heart's posture when you hear of a genuine injustice? Is it apathy or action? Cruelty or care? Seek to do justice in all the various spheres that God has placed you in. Saints, that's not antithetical to the gospel. That's not against the gospel. That's actually the fruit of the gospel. Caring about the things that God cares about, which only happens as we obey that last command there in verse 8, to walk humbly with God, to devote ourselves to living for him and for his glory in a way that aims chiefly to submit to him and his will. Now, none of us naturally do this. And on our own, we can't do this. But Jesus has done what we cannot do. He came to earth and walked this path of humility before God and total obedience to God for us. He demonstrated perfectly what it looked like to do justice and to love kindness, constantly spending time with and sharing the gospel with and caring and helping the marginalized and the weak. And for those of us, died to save. He's given us his very spirit to live inside of us and empower us to live our entire lives in service to God and for the good of people. What must you do for God? Offer your whole life to him in obedience and faith and live for him. But that's not to earn favor, but rather a response to the favor he's already shown to you. Israel was God's people, not because they worked to earn that status, but because God graciously chose to enter into a covenant relationship with them. No amount of sacrifices or works was sufficient to buy his love. That was an insult. They were to reciprocate God's love. And so are we. 
How great is God's love to you? Think of the kindness he's shown to you. Offering his very son for you to enter into a relationship with you. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. It was a free gift given through faith. Your only requirement now, continue to live by faith. Remaining faithful to God, which is reflected in how you treat his people. That's what truly pleases the Lord. Failing to live this way, however, while continuing with our supposed religious performances, only displeases him and will incur his punishment. Which leads to our third and final point. What will happen if we don't do what God demands? Point number three, what will happen if we don't? As you look at this final section, you just see God's verdict on his people if they don't turn away from their unjust ways and live just God-honoring lives. Verse 9 begins with Micah's plea for the people to, to hear what God has to say, proclaiming that wisdom will be demonstrated in fearing him. Do not take this God for a joke. Hear of the rod of discipline that God will appoint to strike you if you don't turn from your ways. And then starting in verse 10, just notice how God just starts recounting all their unjust practices. He can't, he won't forget their wickedness, he says in verse 10. He won't equip those in, in verse 11 with wicked scales, with deceitful weights. It refers to the practice of, of rigging weights and, and measures to, and to cheat buyers, to defraud. That kind of unjust business practices that, that have become commonplace in Israel. And God pointed it out in, in chapter 3 earlier when he said the people all make crooked what's supposed to be straight. Verse 12, God says, and are full of violence. They feed on the poor. Micah talked about that earlier as well. With the wealthy land barons and rulers abusing the poor, snatching their lands and feasting on them like cannibals. He continues in verse 12, your inhabitants speak lies like the false prophets were constantly doing in the land and deceiving the people. Therefore, God says in verse 13, because of all this, I will strike you with the grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. God was going to raise up a people, the people of Babylon, to, to come and strike Israel down. They would raid Jerusalem and carry off the people of Judah as exiles, and the land would be desolate. But even before then, God would, would turn himself against them as their enemy. He would shut up heaven so that their food supply would be short. They'd have food to eat, but not enough to be satisfied, verse 14 says. Some to preserve them for a little while, but the little that they did store up, God would allow others to come in and take by the sword. And some... God was going to do what he said he'd do if they turned away from them, him. He was going to curse every facet of their lives. And again, remember why. God is not vague here. He says, because of your sins. For, he says in verse 16, you have kept the statues of Omri and the works of Ahab, the two kings in Israel, who the best thing to said about them is that this king did worse than every other king before them. Their ways that the people 
of Israel collectively have followed. And it's God's judgment that they rightly earned, as all of us have. When we walk in the ways of wickedness, instead of in the path that God has laid out for us, when we don't do what God commands, but rather do what our hearts desire, when we live in sin and away from the Lord, we promise ourselves nothing but meeting this certain and future judgment. We might enjoy some of the fruits of God's common grace now. We might have some food and, and drink. We might have temporary riches and, and prestige. We might laugh and have a good time. But that in no way is indicative of God's favor because it will not last We'll be left longing for more, but never get it. Rather, we'll be met with increasing judgment, culminating in eternal death. Friends, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And no amount of religious works can pay the price to bridge the gap. Not your attendance this morning, not your giving today, not your religious works this week. But if we confess our neediness, our sins, and repent, then this judgment to come for us becomes judgment that came. Our judgment gets poured out on Christ, who came to bear our sins and our shame and to give us new life in him to live for his glory. This warning here of what will happen doesn't happen. Because Jesus has already lived the life that God requires and given us the ability to do so as well. But it's only through him. God will forever remain a faithful covenant partner. The only question is, will we? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that cuts us, Lord, but then heals us, that points out our sin, but then shows us a great Savior. Lord, we thank you for your word that reminds us of your long record of faithfulness. Lord, we pray, Lord, that as we look at all the ways that we've been faithless, Lord, that we're not tempted to look further inside ourselves for answers or for hope, But Lord, would you this morning, right now, Lord, lift all of our hearts to look upon Jesus and to confess together that all we have is Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.